Hello my friends, this is Sarah from Weird Horizon and thank you for coming back to this series for another week. The series on cryptozoology, which is turning into an absolute beast. Um, so we are going to be focusing for another week on the theories surrounding Yeti, Bigfoot, Sasquatch and other large hairy bipedal primates. Generally referred to by those attempting to prove their physical existence as anomalous primates. So today we are going to be exploring what some call the Northwest Sasquatch Expedition or the Northwest Sasquatch Bigfoot Research Effort. And it is a research effort surrounding local anomalous apes, as you would have guessed, Bigfoot and Sasquatch in Canada and the US. Many of those working in this field were amateurs and proud of it, but a key figure in the field was Grover Krantz, and it is his life and career we will be mostly talking about today. So Krantz, unlike many others, maintained an academic life outside of Sasquatch and Bigfoot research, although there is quite a lot of evidence that his career suffered through his association with this search. Nevertheless, questions were raised in a reaction to this blurring of the lines between science and legend, and to quote about the demarcation of science and pseudoscience, and about the location of the seat of intellectual authority. Was it with amateurs or academics, crackpots or eggheads? So again, this week we're going to be approaching Bigfoot and Sasquatch through the viewpoint of the scientists, amateurs and explorers who sought physical evidence for their existence and attempted to situate them in our accepted scientific framework. Once again, this episode is in particular debt to the works that I've already cited being Searching for Sasquatch, Crackpots, Eggheads and Cryptozoology by Brian Regal, which I quoted above and The Locals, a contemporary investigation of the Bigfoot Sasquatch phenomenon by Tom Powell. But without much further ado, <laughs> let's get into it. So the Pacific Northwest Sasquatch research effort can be delineated as its own efforts, as it rejected much of what had come before, mainly the methodology of the yeti hunting that we spoke of previously. So whereas this yeti hunting, or Yeti discovery efforts situated its research in the context of adventuring and conquest, hinging at least in part on the exoticization of far-flung lands in order to sustain the legend of these quasi-mythical creatures. Those in Canada and the US had many differing reasons for studying the creatures. So their efforts sought to investigate the encounters happening in their backyard, basically, and saw insight from the evidence that they left behind. They approached it from a more scientific, although amateur, viewpoint most of the time. Many of those who we talk about today weren't out there to try and catch a specimen, more just attempt to resolve the numerous accounts of their sightings in a scientific manner. So some in the field were quick to point out the glaring issues with this yeti hunting, as we said. And I term, term it yeti hunting, that is just a broad description of this period of yeti um, expeditions. So the biggest evidence often touted for the yeti's existence in these expeditions were the prints that they left behind. And as we've already explored in a previous episode, for a variety of reasons, these high-profile and 
highly expensive expeditions generally turned up little, if anything, of any scientific value. What's more, many of those on these expeditions lacked any kind of even theoretical scientific training, let alone the the motivation to apply scientific methodology to their search. As a result of this, an angle often ignored in the quest for the Yeti was the environmental effect of where they were researching, particularly the effect of the hot sun and wind on the footprints on the snow that for many were their prime piece of evidence for the creature's existence. Modern supporters for the creature's existence are quick to admit that the snow is probably the worst place to find a reliable print of an animal like this, as the sun very quickly has the effect of distending and warping any prints found in it within a very, very short period of time. So it was likely that many of the prints that these yeti explorers were encountering were animal prints, or maybe even their own prints, But of course, this fact was generally ignored in favour of the grand sort of narrative of their big adventure. But as a reaction to this, the prints we talk about as found in the Pacific Northwest are generally only agreed to be good quality if they are found in very certain conditions, and therefore more likely to be a true impression of what left them there. So after all, the accuracy of the print is paramount for anyone studying them, and wishing to glean anything from it. From the outset, the field rejected evidence that although it may prove their point, for example, these prints in snow, was provably unreliable, and that is one key way in which it rejected a lot of what came before it in terms of the Yeti hunting expeditions. Another issue that the Bigfoot and Sasquatch researchers sought to correct was the often less-than-scientific motivation for the search in the first place. So yeti hunting, to generalise, of course, hugely, basically sought out to catch a beast, a monster, a local legend, and bring it back home for exhibition. It is a very sort of old-fashioned-seeming idea now, but it just shows how much the attitude to this changed within just a couple of brief decades. The Pacific Northwest expedition sought to, in general, study a primate. So that's the angle we're going to look at from today. Of course, there are paranormal and spiritual angles to the Bigfoot and Sasquatch story specifically, which we will go into in future weeks. But the large amount of people were going out here to study a primate or a bipedal creature that is similar to primates and potentially one that is in some way related to us or related to our ancestors. They wanted to learn more about it because learning more about it would potentially give us more information about our own history. Because of this, many of the people we will talk about in this portion of the story are anthropologists. Whether professional or not, they were interested in this aspect of the scientific study of humanity. They were seeking to study man-like creatures, after all, not monsters. In general, also, they were not really looking for fame or glory. The focus and the motivation for most of these people's interest in the subject was simply to learn more or to confirm something that they had the suspicion was true for their own satisfaction. As already touched upon, their approach was very much back to basics. 
So their angle on this was informed by the failures of this very famous Yeti expeditions and the failure of the adventurers such as Eric Shipton and the Tom Slicks of the world to produce evidence that would bear any fruit when sent back to the lab for analysis. If evidence were to be found, it would be the investigators who would find it, building on their deep knowledge of the subject, their sheer commitment to the field. It would not be found by some casual adventurer or hired scientific advisor. So most of the people we talk about in the Northwest Sasquatch expedition were theoretical thinkers around the field, so they had their own theories which they would share with others. But they were also deeply embedded in the fieldwork. They would be the first to go out personally to investigate any evidence found of encounters. They weren't sat back in the lab waiting for people to bring them evidence. They weren't out there gathering evidence and sending it off for someone else to analyse. They were pretty much there through the whole process. And like I said, using their deep knowledge of the field and using their theories, often their own theories, which they developed over time, and then trying to sort of ally this with the evidence that they find. It should be noted then, of course, that they are somewhat subject to their own personal biases. And this is something we will cover when we talk about the hoax portion of this period of cryptozoology. But for all of these reasons, Grover Krantz is a good example of one kind of person working in this second wave of anomalous primate research. He doesn't represent everyone in the field, but as quoted by Regal, Grover Krantz spoke the loudest and risked the most, operating as a public and energetic monster hunter. So a physical anthropologist whose theories aimed to work from the evidence we do have of the creatures, i.e. predominantly prints, and to verify how a creature should look and move and compare evidence accordingly. So much of his theory were based on the biomechanics of the foot as derived from prints and compared to existing apes and the articulation of their feet to work out if such a creature could physically exist? Does it work within the laws of biomechanics? So his research and the research of those like him created some of the theories that most convincingly situate the creatures as belonging to the ape family and similarly distance many of the found prints from the suggestion that they were nothing more than simple hoaxes. So there are certain hallmarks that he found on the prints, being dermal ridges found on many prints, so the fingerprint-like ridges found on ape species' feet and hands, and only ape species. And the idea that this was a detail that would be hard to fake and unlikely to be faked by anyone other than a physical anthropologist. Second to this, he also made reference to the mid-tarsal break found on many prints, Evidence of a sort of jointed, hinged foot. Again, a detail common to ape species, but hard to replicate for a fake. So there have been people who have tried to replicate this. So they have looked at the existing prints that we have with evidence of this mid-tarsal break and attempted to create a sort of fake foot that would displace the earth in the same way. And they haven't been able to replicate it for a fake. So 
I said, me personally, I think this is some of the most convincing evidence that at the very least these prints would be incredibly difficult to fake, except by someone who had an incredible wealth of anthropological knowledge, which is not out of the realms of possibility. And I'll touch a little bit on that in a moment. But yes, to summarise, as suggested by this, in Krantz's view, much of the information gleaned from these prints was so specific and relied on such deep scientific knowledge to even understand. If someone were to fake them, they would have to have the same depth of knowledge as him on the matter, and even Krantz, who made this the focus of his academic career, even he didn't have everything figured out. Nevertheless, there were those who disapproved of Krantz's approach, primarily because he maintained a sort of quasi-academic, quasi-professional scientific viewpoint on this. So one of the individuals who was most disapproving of Krantz, who clashed so consistently with him throughout his life, was René de Hinden, a Swiss-Canadian often described as Krantz's nemesis. So quoting again from Regal, he resented experts with their formal training and theoretical ways of thinking and soon developed a dislike for Grover Krantz. So from an outside looking in, it seems like the movement at this time was always plagued somewhat by this tension that existed through the Yeti expeditions as well. This desire to investigate in a thorough methodological way, so a scientific, even if there was a kind of resentment for science displayed at times, the need to have evidence and discoveries that can be ratified by science and need to be ratified by science to further and legitimise the field, and this distrust from the exact same process. So Grover Krantz was always walking this fine line between them, but of course there would always be people who felt he fell too far one way. So let's explore for a little while Grover Krantz and his foil, René de Hinden, and the contradiction at the heart of the expedition, starting with de Hinden. So to quote Regal in Searching for Sasquatch again, Far from the swashbuckling mountaineers of the Yeti hunts of Asia, in North America the model of the dedicated, obsessive, amateur, man-like monster hunter took the form of Swiss-born Canadian René de Hinden. The irascible and original de Hinden entered the quest for Sasquatch upon his arrival in the New World and developed a reputation for being coarse and abrupt with anyone he thought a fraud or a fool, which in the end formed a rather long list. So de Hinden's introduction to the field he directly cites as a reaction to the idea of the Daily Mail expedition. So hearing about this huge high-profile expedition and to being confused as to why people felt the need to travel the globe for these creatures that he had heard through legend had been living in the Canada and the US this entire time. By the mid-50s, de Hinden had turned this sort of interest into a serious pursuit and in the course of his research, he started to make a tentative acquaintance with others who were doing the same. One of those being local newspaper man, John Green, who is incredibly famous Canadian cryptozoologist. But when the town of Hot Springs, British Columbia, 
decided to try and cash in on this Yeti craze with their own, as they say, local Bigfoot legends. Green and Hinden agreed to take part in this new expedition. And the two, through their participation in this failed scheme, became anomalous primate experts. They became the people that people went to to ask questions about anomalous primates. But it wasn't very long before de Hinden became frustrated with all of it, with the fact that there were so many new eyes on the subject and that more and more people were coming out of the woodwork to talk about anomalous primates. And this was before he crossed paths with Tom Slick's Pacific Northwest expedition. A fierce individual and already disillusioned by the failure of this hot springs expedition and what he viewed as just a very shallow cash grab, when Dehinden initially crossed paths with the Slick expedition, he of course didn't believe that it was approaching the subject from the right way. But nonetheless, he was compelled to go along, at least at first, which is something we found with Many scientists with the Yeti expeditions, they disagree with what's going on from the get-go, but feel almost compelled to go along, just on the off chance that they will find something. But de Hinden's approach clashed with the other members of the team almost immediately, and he was so disillusioned by the whole thing that he left the field of cryptozoology for a time. The Slick Expedition was exactly what you would imagine um, from basically the Slick Yeti Expedition, but translated to the US. So it brought with it all of the terminal issues it had faced in the Tibetan and Nepalese mountains. But ultimately the world had moved on from this style of adventuring, and Slick, through his involvement in it, was threatening to take cryptozoology with him into this realm of historical obscurity and novelty. But John Green, who he mentioned, would remain in the field, and he would slowly draw and draw more eyes to the subject with his hugely influential and popular books on Yeti and Bigfoot. So On the Track of Sasquatch was published in 1968, and it was a huge popular success. The Slick-funded Pacific Northwest expedition, of course, like all the expeditions which had preceded it, turned up nothing. De Hinden eventually returned to the field that he would devote his life to, but bringing with him even more distrust than he had before. It would be the last and only full-scale investigation into Bigfoot and Sasquatch in this expedition style and the final nail in the coffin for this style of doing things. Because it was the very casual nature of it that clashed with many other people working in the field, De Hinden being one of them. So De Hinden was singularly devoted to the quest for Bigfoots. So again to quote, he made his search for the elusive big hairy bastard, as he called it, his quest with a level of intensity and single-mindedness to make Captain Ahab proud. So he had no time for dabblers, for career adventurers. This was a fact that put him at odds with others who attempt to maintain a more sort of balanced or hobbyist approach to their interests. For de Hinden, this was a life's pursuit and something that he poured everything into. 
And whereas others tried to tread the line between maintaining some kind of respectability in the idea that they would be listened to, with the idea that you need to kind of sell these theories to the wider world in order to get attention and in order for them to be proved correct, de Hinden devoted his life basically to Bigfoot and Sasquatch research and he didn't really try and maintain much of a public persona beyond being sort of quirky and, and brusque amateur cryptozoologist. So already fairly early on, you can see that there are a couple of very different approaches to the subject and they've kind of taken the yeti hunting that came before it and gone off in two separate directions as a reaction to it. One, the highly, highly amateur cutting themselves off from technology, um, such as the René de Hinden. And then you've got the much more scientifically based, much more theoretical, much more critical scientific side who are still true believers, but are trying to ally what they believe in with something scientific. So you've got two very different paths that have been taken as a direct response to this yeti hunting phenomena. But what really ignited this movement though were the mysterious tracks discovered by workman Jerry Crew and later termed Bigfoot as we've spoken of. So these creatures had been seen for decades. They were part of the local legend dating back generation. But the response to the story of these prints according to the guy who wrote the story on Bigfoot was quote like loosening a single stone in an avalanche. So pretty much overnight, a new generation of individuals undertook the investigation of these tracks. What they meant, what the creature truly was, whether the creature was still alive. Suddenly, even more people were appearing to investigate any found prints. And although de Hinden was still investigating these same prints, he found himself surrounded by dozens of others who were and he wasn't always very happy with their approach to the situation. And Hinden, in fact, crossed paths with our boy Grover Krantz at one of these such sites. The discovery of the prince termed the Bosberg incident, in which a number of very notable, very important tracks were found and cast. But de Hinden wasn't suspicious of everything and everyone. So he was a major defender of... The Patterson-Gimlin film, even though for me that seems like he would be a detractor of it because it just brought so much attention to it. But he truly believed that it represented a video recording of the creature that they were seeking. Perhaps because other people didn't believe that it, <laughs> that it was truthful, but ultimately he would die without ever finding any true verifiable evidence without the Bigfoot Sasquatch effort really turning up any major evidence, unfortunately. And his final words on the subject purportedly were, you know, I've spent over 40 years and I didn't find it. I guess that's got to say something. But why did he hate Grover Krantz? So the reason we're talking about René de Hinden is because he hated Grover Krantz with a passion. But why was this so? After all, they were in general agreement over many of the things that truly mattered. It was a matter of personality, definitely. Both men intentionally trod a solitary path in which they were often their only supporters. 
But de Hinton has this to say of Krantz. This guy is so condescending. He's so totally egomaniac that I have to kick him. I can't help myself. But we're not going to spend a huge amount of time with de Hinden. I just wanted to illustrate a little bit of the trend with the continuation of this field. The trend towards individuality, the strong personas of those in the field, and the ways in which they allied themselves with the elusive loneliness that they studied, whether intentionally or not. And we're going to learn a little bit about Grover Krantz, and we're going to figure out whether we want to kick him as well. (laughs) To quote Brian Regal, Krantz's career is a case study in the murky borders between science and pseudoscience, and is a microcosm of the search for monsters. A trained and gifted paleoanthropologist, interest piqued by the discovery of man-like creatures with Bigfoot, Sasquatch, and the infamous Minnesota Iceman we will talk about in a coming episode. The maverick exploration of man-like monsters as an application of his scientific skills, held a certain appeal to Krantz. The dissertation for which he was awarded his doctorate at the University of Minnesota, where he spent much of his academic career, was termed the origins of man. So immediately Krantz had a slightly different approach to some others in the field. He wasn't so much seeking, like de Hinden, to see Bigfoot for himself, Captain Ahab style, more he was interested in proving their theoretical existence. But like de Hinden, Krantz, as you will hear, was never one to want to disappear into a crowd. Over the course of his career, Krantz published dozens of academic papers and ten books on the subject of human evolution. He situated himself squarely in this contradiction we've been speaking about, as both amateur and professional in turn and in the best position to critique both sides of the argument. He entered the field just as the Yeti phase ended and the Bigfoot-Sasquatch phase was taking off. Born in Utah in 1931, Gordon Grover Sanders Krantz came from a Mormon family. Being himself largely non-practicing, he may have, although we're not sure, been exposed to Bigfoot or Sasquatch legends in his youth, through the David W. Patton story of the biblical Cain, which we have already spoken about, in which the Mormon missionary was said to have been approached by a huge bipedal creature in the forest with very much the appearance of a Sasquatch. However, if Krantz was aware of this, he never brought this fact to the public attention. Krantz's own explanation for what inspired his interest in the creatures were the reports of the Yeti in Nepal in 1950s and the theories around these creatures. But he incorporated this interest into his classwork offered. From the get-go, he incorporated it into his sort of professional and academic life. So, for example, as part of his classwork, he submitted his own sketches of Gigantopithecus, the potential fossil relative to anomalous primates that many hinge their more scientific reasoning upon. He read and absorbed Hubelmont and Sanderson's work, among other works stemming from this burgeoning field of cryptozoology. It was at the University of California, Berkeley, that he would resume formal education after a brief stint in the military. 
He joined the anthropology department there, which since the beginning of the century had been well respected and recognised for their contributions to the field. But as with many people who pursue an academic career, his teaching assistant work for the department was not enough to support him moving directly into their doctoral programme, so he was forced to take other work. And in many ways this system of academia is somewhat of a return to form. As already mentioned, science or career scientists were somewhat of a new concept up until very recently, up until as early as the previous century. Scientists were, in this era, by definition, amateurs, engaging in the study of the world for their own self-development and enjoyment. There was this previous century idea of this sort of genteel scientist, and therefore the idea of a career scientist was something of an oxymoron. And with Krantz, I'd argue you can see this sort of dichotomy play out again. With it becoming harder and harder to support the life of a scientist, unless under very specific circumstances, only concerning very specific subjects, for example, and only working for certain institutes, for example, again we come across this idea of the wrong way to do science. In this case, meaning that there were wrong subjects. And at this point in time, the wrong disciplines were discouraged in that they were increasingly impossible to get funding for. And even just association with these subjects could mean losing support for other unrelated ventures. But anyway, for Krantz, it became clear that he would have to find a way to sustain himself outside of pure academic pursuits or risk slipping into poverty. Unfortunately for Krantz, he was not independently wealthy, so until his early 30s, he took sort of odd jobs and little bits of academic work where he could find it. His savings declined and his lifestyle shifted to the point that he was perpetuating his interest in anthropology, even when away from the university by writing articles. But he was only just getting by, he was living out of his car and slipping deeper and deeper into alcoholism and depression. He would be saved by the star of our story, Irish wolfhound Clyde. And you may know of Clyde by the famous image of his gigantic skeleton posed with the remains of Krantz in the Smithsonian Museum. The two would become bonded and... Clyde almost certainly saved Krantz's life, and Krantz admitted this multiple times. And therefore, all contributions he brought to cryptozoology would not exist if it weren't for Clyde. And as mentioned, there is this famous image of the two of them. Their skeletons are displayed, posed together in the Smithsonian Institute. Together, even in death, it's very, very cute. But with Clyde by his side, Krantz finally entered the Berkeley doctoral program to work alongside Sherwood Washburn. Now, Sherwood Sherry Washburn has been said to have changed the field of anthropology for the better and to have disentangled the last of its entanglement with spurious and often racist race theory with his trailblazing work on primates conducted in the wild in the 40s and 50s. He rejected the views of people like Carlton Kuhn and worked to bring revolutionary thinking into anthropology. He coined the term the new physical anthropology. Unfortunately, though, although the two 
uh, Washburn and Krantz were working on the same side and in agreement in many academic points. Their professional relationship suffered to the point that Krantz transferred to Minnesota to finish out his programme. Nevertheless, you can see at this time a trend to continue to, as we said, disentangle anthropology from some of its more racist implications of previous decades and previous centuries. And therefore, again, it's another way in which the cryptozoology as a field turned away from some of the implications that had come before. So it's important to note, even though the two were not close personally, a lot of their academic work went along similar bounds and, as mentioned, changed the field of anthropology for the better. At the same time as all this, the story in pulp magazine Argozi on the Patterson-Gimlin film was gaining attention, and when someone at Minneapolis Star knew that visiting Professor Krantz was around, who had once famously gone looking for snowmen in California, he made his first public appearance and public statement on the subject of anomalous primates, saying that the, the stills of the Patterson-Gimlin film look to me like someone wearing a gorilla suit. Krantz was not at this point at the Dehinden level of devotion. As we mentioned, Dehinden was a true believer in the Patterson-Gimlin film. Krantz was still at this point fairly critical of it, but this would change. After he'd actually seen the film for himself, not just the stills, the realism of the creature's locomotion impressed him. So we will speak more about the Patterson-Gimlin film a little later in the series. But arguably, in Regal's words, the Thanksgiving holiday of 1969 was the event that changed Krantz's career. Krantz saw Sasquatch tracks in the field for the first time at Bosberg, Washington. The Bosberg incident, which is the incident I mentioned where he crossed paths with de Hinden, maybe more than any other in the pantheon of Sasquatch events, came as a watershed for anomalous primate research. It marked the point at which an American academic scientist began to take the Sasquatch phenomenon seriously and pursue it actively and publicly over an extended period. So as implied by this, many of those, specifically those with an academic background, did not really take their work on cryptozoology out into the public. So their interest was known within a small select group, but they weren't generally out there to bring huge amounts of publicity to the field. And when they were attempting to get publicity to the field such as people like John Green, they weren't doing so through academic circles, more like popular books to try and get just regular people interested in it. But at the same time, this effort was kind of limited, perhaps because they knew what had happened to the Yeti hunting community due to the huge amount of attention that it drew to itself, although that this attention was completely necessary in order to furnish the expedition in the first place. It's a contradiction, but it unfortunately is a contradiction that formed the downfall of the Yeti hunting expeditions. And it was a contradiction that the Northwest expedition was trying to avoid. But the Bosberg incident began to change Krantz's attitude. Again, to quote, The Bosberg case proved to be a major turning point in the life of Grover Krantz. 
The typical trajectory of anomalous primate discoveries has the crackpots becoming excited about a discovery, feeling it to be genuine proof of their assertions. A case we will use to illustrate this later is the Minnesota Iceman case, in which the crackpots, meaning the fathers of cryptozoology here, Ivan Sanderson and Bernard Huvelmont, were drawn into a hoax due to their will to believe in it. To quote, The eggheads come along and after the occasional mild interest, usually dismiss the whole thing as a hoax or misidentification and walk away. With Bosberg, the opposite occurred. Here the eggheads became excited, while many crackpots eventually dismissed it. Grovercrantz arrived on the scene later, but his attention immediately turned to the abnormal right footprints. So Krantz heard of the tracks found at Bosberg and headed down, ready to investigate the remaining prints that hadn't been destroyed by weather or attempts to cast them or both. And again to quote, As Krantz squatted there in the snow with his wool cap and rubber boots, staring into a foot-shaped destiny, John Green took out his camera and snapped a picture, recording the moment for posterity. Krantz may have not realised it at that moment, but he had just turned permanently from sceptic to believer. So Krantz, up until this point, lived the life of an academic maverick, so enjoying the path less travelled. Some had suggested that he chose the route of anomalous primate research in order to maintain his reputation of always being just slightly out of step with the rest of the academic world, by choice and by design. But now it had truly become a passion for him. And following up the discovery of footprints in the Bosberg incident, there would be a discovery of a pair of influential handprints also. And the strength of all of these combined prints and the strong casts he managed to make of them instilled in Krantz the germ of an idea that he may use them to study in an academic environment and that they truly might represent evidence of a large living primate and enough evidence that he may extrapolate from them the form and biology of said primates. Both prints had interesting anatomical details, so the hand in particular. The biomechanical and muscular structure suggested by the print all combined to suggest a large primate cohesive with the size of the reported sightings and crucially with a reduced thenar pad, implying the lack of a human-like grasping hand, again a detail that was supported by the body of sightings of the creature. But the academic world was still slow to support Krantz on this subject, and he struggled to find a home for these articles because they kind of trod the line still between a subject that many viewed as mythology. Many of them hadn't really experienced this sort of sea change that one in the community had. They were still approaching it from sort of previous century monster hunting perspective. So he struggled to find a home for him that for these articles in journals. But John Green continued to believe in him and he continued to put out work which draw more and more popular appeal, such as 1970s Year of the Sasquatch. And slowly more and more people started to listen to him. 
So Grover Krantz's work is still hugely influential in the field to this day. And some of the evidence put forward by him, I have to admit, I am quite convinced by personally, although I have not spent a huge amount of time, I have to say, looking into it. Um, the biggest contribution made to the field, arguably by any one individual, is probably the analysis of the print termed cripple foot. So the Bosberg prints presented a unique opportunity in that they were not perfect or not even imperfect mirror images of one another. The right foot was markedly different from the left, implying that the creature had an injured or otherwise abnormal right foot. And from this abnormality, of course, came even more clues about how the feet were structured. Using the information gleaned by both prints, Krantz created an anatomical reconstruction of how the feet, how the skeletal feet were structured. He based his work on an enlarged human foot skeleton and scaled where necessary in order to produce a foot capable biomechanically of supporting a creature of that size and weight. He worked out how big the heel needed to be, where it would need to be connected to the foot, for example, because due to the size, it could not connect in the same way that human feet do. It was not simply just an enlarged version of a human foot. In Krantz's own words, anatomically, this means that the ankle weight is shifted somewhat forward, he explains. It's not just a gigantic human foot. The leverage has been redesigned, and this happens to be redesigned just exactly the way it would have been for an 800-pound animal. So he extrapolated from the locomotion viewable in the Patterson-Gimlin film on how the foot would have to be structured to move in the right way to match the height and weight of the mythical creature and how the structure would have to change should the creature be injured. And he fully expected this approach to produce a result drastically different from the recovered prints, showing a hoax or some misremembering or some conflation of evidence. But they didn't. They fit. They were an exact fit. There was no... In his own words, he didn't have to fudge the numbers at all. The crippled foot was built just the way biomechanical theory said it should be. The anthropological approach had begun to produce results. So, says Krantz, the idea this was faked by somebody isn't quite so simple. If it was faked, it was done by a human anatomist who was a real genius. And he had to have laid out thousands of these fakes all over the place. And that just simply becomes impossible. I should mention that Krantz was not the first to apply attempts at anatomical reconstruction to primate prints. In 1960, Vladimir Shinesky attempted a similar method with Eric Shipton's famous Yeti print photographs. And like Krantz, although it was believed Krantz had not read his work, he ruled out human hoaxing, suggesting that the prints were most likely from a huge bipedal primate, even going so far to say it was most probably of a similar type to the fossil Gigantopithecus. So I don't know which Yeti prints he was using for this, but it is interesting that these two scientists came to the same conclusions without any outside influence from each other. 
And it was, of course, not Krantz's fault that he was unaware of this work, because in many ways it supported his own, and of course he would have used it to support his own work had he known about it. But the fact is that the field was quite fractured, and it was consistently dogged by hoaxes, and struggling to find this place between academia and pulp writing, nothing being an easy fit. But Krantz in many ways repeated over and over again his attempts to pull cryptozoology out of its trend towards the paranormal or conspiracy and back to science. In pushing the Gigantopithecus theory furthest and most consistently, Krantz completely rejected the spiritual entity and alien visitor ideas, considering them the lunatic fringe. So there was a lot of complicated anthropological theory and nuance around it, and Krantz was constantly navigating that in pushing his theory. And I'm simply not qualified to talk about that, even in summary. But much of this constant debate can be traced back, at least partially, to a concept we've already spoken of, a human need to build a gulf between human and anomalous ape to separate and elevate ourselves above the rest of the animal kingdom. A compulsion which I would argue is human and natural, but antithetical to science, and the impersonal and often cruel world it sometimes seems to describe. Nevertheless, Krantz's career, because of his association with anomalous apes, would never really progress in the way that it should have. He would be passed over for promotion again and again. He was adored by his students despite his often eccentric and strange manner, but he always found himself divorced a lot of the time, just scraping by, but with his beloved Clyde by his side. And in many ways, the textbook image of what you would expect from this academic Bigfoot hunter But like to Hinden, he seemed to grow more maudlin as he aged. Maybe we shouldn't get so attached to other beings, he would say, as he exhumed the skeleton of his beloved Clyde after he had passed on. If we didn't, we wouldn't really be human, would we? So on that note, we will leave it here for this week. So next week we're going to look into the numerous hoaxes and suspected hoaxes that we have spoken about and the ways in which they seem to constantly and consistently knock back the cryptozoological field as it gained even the slightest bit of ground. Revisiting these same characters again um, under the context of these hoaxes and people's reaction to suspected hoaxes as well. As you can gather we're going to be sticking with the subject for a good few weeks yet. So I sincerely hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. Otherwise, um, I would say check back in a few weeks. By then I might be going on about something else, but I cannot make any promises. So you can find me wherever you consume your podcasts, and you can chat with me on Twitter as Weird Horizon, and on Instagram as Weird Horizon Podcast. And search Weird Horizon Podcast on YouTube for episodes there if that takes your fancy. I'm working on bringing over the back catalogue as well as using YouTube to host episode transcripts in an actual usable form. So if you are interested in those, keep an eye on the channel. But for now, bye.